Welcome, grace and peace to you all today. I am Captain Roger McCourt from the Salvation Army's Grass Valley Corps here in beautiful Grass Valley, California. If you are ever in the area, you can find our Sunday morning service happening at our Alta Street Chapel at 11 a.m. live and in person. But thank you for joining us online today for a look into the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 27 today, so grab your Bible and turn there to follow along, because anytime someone tells you something is in the Bible, you want to check that out for yourself, right? Now, while you're finding that, let me start in an earlier book, specifically Psalms chapter 22. Psalms chapter 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you, and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. But I am a worm, not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads, saying, Is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. These are the opening verses of Psalm 22. It's called the Psalm of the Righteous Sufferer. In this psalm, the author describes being tormented by his enemies and suffering at their hands, but in the end, being redeemed by God, his salvation. The, the plea, it's not responded to immediately, at least not in the way the psalmist may hope, but then suddenly, at just the right time, God rescues him. The song goes on to say, For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them but has listened to their cries for help. That's always the question about suffering, isn't it? Where is God in this? Why doesn't he do something? Psalm 22 tells us that he is right there with his people when they call on him, like a parent who comes to the aid of a beloved child. He's with us in our times of greatest need, and he will redeem us when the time is right. Maybe not when we would hope for, but when we need it when it matters the most. I am certain God does not wish for or enjoy suffering for his children. But I am also certain that there are times when he allows it for reasons that may or may not become obvious later. And that's a hard thing to think about, isn't it? That God might allow his children to suffer rather than just reach out and fix everything. That there might be a purpose that we should be trusting in. After all, he's God. How could he possibly understand human suffering? Well, maybe he understands more than we might imagine. Hopefully by now you've found Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start at verse 45. Matthew 27, 45. It says that at noon... Darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. And at about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? See, 
Jesus, in his last moments, is calling out the start of the psalm of the righteous sufferer. It's cueing his listeners to look to him in that role. And his early followers, they made a connection here. They realized that in his experiencing the pain of death, Jesus joined together with all of humankind in that ultimate separation from God, which began back in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they ate that fruit, they'd been warned against. Do you remember what God said to Adam when he warned him? This is from Genesis 2, Genesis 2, 16. The Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you're sure to die. You're sure to die. That's been the fate of every person from Adam forward. They would sin. They'd turn away from God, the source of life. And the result of being separated from life is very simply and plainly death. And now Jesus... Even though he had never disobeyed God, he never turned away, he was about to suffer that same separation, the same death, as every other human being. My God, my God, why have you allowed us to be separated like this? Why have you abandoned me? Two of the great cosmic signs of God's presence appear throughout Scripture, earthquakes and darkness in the daytime. Here, in the story that we're reading, there are heavy billowing clouds sweeping in. They blot out the sunlight. They plunge the land into darkness from noon until the time that Jesus would breathe his last. Now, the first century people who watched for signs of pleasure or displeasure from the gods, this kind of unnatural blackening of the sky would have been an omen that they could not miss. The gods were unhappy. Yahweh was unhappy. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, Jesus cried. Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so that he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Eli, it's the uh, Hebraism for my God, but it does sound like the name Elijah when it's being gasped out by a dying man. Elijah had been a prophet of God who did these tremendous miracles to try to lead a stubborn people back to the God that they had sworn to serve. Ultimately, the Lord took him up to heaven in a flaming chariot before he tasted the death that Jesus is about to experience. Because of his being taken up, there were these stories that Elijah would still come and help those in need, especially those who, like him, taught the people about God. People like, well, like Jesus. Maybe, even though God had allowed Jesus to be crucified, he would send Elijah to rescue him. Yeah, that sounded like a good show. And a lot of those who were still near the crosses were anxious to see if the great prophet would actually come and rescue this Galilean faith healer. And one of them brought a sponge filled with wine vinegar and he hoisted it up to Jesus on a stick. That may not sound very tasty now because wine vinegar is something we tend to put on salads. But this was the Gatorade of the empire. Um... Uh, this sour wine, it was a, a popular and affordable drink among lower classes and workmen. 
It slaked thirst better than water, and it was readily available anywhere that a crowd might gather. Verse 50 says that Jesus shouted out again, and then he released his spirit. He was gone, which I suppose is only right. As he'd said only a week or two before, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now he had. To say that he gave up or released his spirit, that was just a way to say that he died, by the way. Some modern preachers try to make this into a thing, saying that obviously this is about his being in control and choosing to die. But that's not consistent with the context or the language. What was in his control was the choice he had made to do God's will even knowing that God's will would lead him to this cross. Craig Keener says uh, Jesus is both his followers model, obedient and uncomplaining as he serves the Father no matter what the cost, and their Savior who offers himself for the sins of the world. Yeah. Now, Jesus, he died quickly. Loss of blood, shock, difficulty breathing, they all came together in his mortal flesh and he, he died. Just like any of us would if we were subjected to the same abuse and destruction of our bodies. And he died about three o'clock in the afternoon, which is interesting. That's the time when the official lamb of, of offering happens in the temple every day, the, the evening sacrifice for the sins of the people. What was it John the Baptist had said when he first saw Jesus? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There was a tradition in Judaism that the prayers of the righteous sustain the world and that when a righteous person died, it was expected there would be signs that the world mourned their passing. When Jesus died, there were several such signs, starting with that darkness. And then these things that Matthew recorded as happening at the moment that Jesus' spirit departed. Verse 51, at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and rocks split apart and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead and they left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared to many people. That last bit's written in a bit of a jumble, but I think we can safely untangle it in this way. When Jesus died, the earth shook and the rocks of these tombs cracked open. Later, when Jesus is resurrected, those men and women of particularly godly disposition, whose dead bodies had resided in those tombs, they were able to walk free and wander into the city, causing quite a stir along the way, I imagine. The earthquake itself was one of those cosmic signs I mentioned earlier. God's presence being revealed can be earth-shaking even at the best of times, right? And that curtain being torn. <clears throat> let, me, uh, let me explain briefly here. The Jewish temple was built with a series of access levels. There was kind of the outer ring that was the court of the Gentiles where everyone was supposed to have the freedom to come and worship God together. 
moving inward, you would go into the court of the women where uh, religious Jews were permitted. Then the court of Israel, which was only open to men. And uh, again, religious Jews, because you're inside that circle. And then there was an inner chamber beyond that uh, called the holy place. And here sacrifices were offered on the altar and incense representing the prayers of the people would be burned. And it was said that the smoke would fly up to heaven and carry those messages with it. And inside of that, inside of the holy place, screened off from the rest, was the holy of holies. Now, this had been the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant originally. And even though that artifact had been lost in one of the many conquests of Israel, there was still a special altar here, one that the high priest would use to make a single purity ritual involving the blood of an innocent lamb being spilled on an altar called the mercy seat. This was said to be where God would live as closely with his people as he could. The sacrifice here was made just one time each year, and no one was allowed into the Holy of Holies except the high priest. And it was thought that if God was displeased with the high priest, he would strike him dead on the spot for even daring to come near him. And to make sure that they would know if this happened, the other priests, they put bells on the high priest's clothing so that he would jingle while he walked. And they also tied a rope around his ankle. So if he died, instead of being able to make the sacrifice, his bells would stop. And then they would pull him out from behind the curtain, which screened that innermost chamber away from all prying eyes. Now, we don't know if this ever actually happened, but it's good that people had a plan, right? Yeah. This curtain that the high priest would go behind to get to that special holy of holies, this was the curtain that tore when Jesus died and the earth shook. It's been suggested that this happened when God left the temple a final time, his last judgment on the old system and his embrace of the new covenant that Jesus established, just like he said he would, with his body and his blood. And at the tearing of that fabric, it wouldn't have been immediately obvious to those who were near the crosses where Jesus had just died. Obviously, that happened inside the temple. No one would have known about it at first, except for the handful of priests who were there. But the darkness, the earthquake, and the other weirdness surrounding the life and death of the master, those things would have been noted by everyone who was there at the foot of his cross. And it would have added up to a conclusion made by Jewish believer and pagan Gentile alike that Jesus was far more than just a man. Verse 54 the Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that happened. They said, this man truly was the son of God. Or more likely, given who they were and what they believed, this probably should be translated to say, truly, he was a son of the gods. But either way, the meaning ultimately is the same. Jesus was no ordinary man. There was divinity here, and it involved them, the, the Romans, just as much as it involved the Jews. To, to think that this was witnessed by pagan soldiers instead of by Jesus' own disciples. I mean, after all, his own followers, they'd all fled, hadn't they? Well, maybe not all of them. In fact, it was really just the men who took off. Verse 55 
Many women who had come from Galilee with Jesus to care for him were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now, <laughs> stop for a sec. When you put all the gospel accounts together, there seem to have been at least two other women named Mary in this group as well. Uh, Mary was a, a very popular name at this time. So we've got Mary, 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 uh, and uh, Mary and Mary, and then there's uh, at least uh, two other women who are here who may also be called Mary, but we're not really sure. Uh, that These women saw everything. That's what's important. That's why they're mentioned by all these different gospel writers. That it's important that they were there and they saw Jesus on the cross. They saw him alive. They saw him dead. And they saw the, the, the death squad finish him off and take him down from that cross. These women are our first witnesses besides the members of the death squad who had carried out the execution of Jesus. Soon we'll see that some of these women will be witnesses to the burial of Jesus and then witnesses to what would happen a few days later. Some had come from Galilee They'd been his followers since the early days, faithfully serving just like the men as his disciples. And Jesus believed and he acted as if men and women were equally capable of being disciples, which is good enough for me, frankly. I'm not sure of any reason other than a lust for power and position why any man would ever claim women to be inferior or unable to hold the same positions of leadership and teaching as we do. But... I digress. The point I want to convey here is that even in his dying, Jesus is demonstrating that he is the promised Messiah. Where being nailed to a cross and dying there would have just been the end to any mere human being. Jesus, for Jesus, everything about this, including his death, is just another victory. We need to treat it as such, which is crazy, of course. Dying on a cross, that's victory? How is that possibly victory? Well, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know that it is the very power of God. And if that's true, then even the death of Jesus on the cross is something that should bring us joy because it is the point at which salvation began for us. And it demonstrates clearly the power of God over this world that he created. And it demonstrates that he really does understand the things that we're going through. He really does know what it's like to suffer the depths of despair. He knows what it's like to feel like God is not paying attention. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? But he also knows that we have the capability to hold on to that hope, that expectation, that understanding that God will redeem us. We can rely on God. I uh, know I say this on a, a fairly regular basis, but we need to keep in mind, death 
is not as fatal as we make it out to be. Even just in the passage we just read, we've heard about resurrections. Resurrections, more than one. We've heard about more than one person who has discovered that there is life on the other side. That should bring us joy. You should understand that there is salvation. There is restoration for the people of God. And we should want to be part of those people. Are you with me? Hey, you got any thoughts, comments, or questions? Post them online here or send me an email or come to one of our in-person services and interrupt the service and ask questions when you have them because that's how we learn, asking questions. What I want you to do today is just take this with you, this understanding that there is victory even in Jesus' death on the cross. I want you to take that with you and use it to change how you view Jesus and the other people in our world. And you just put on this lens of joy. Amen? Yeah. We can do it, right? Let's uh, say a quick word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the life and death of Jesus. Thank you that in our worst sufferings and our greatest traumas and our deepest pains... You are with us. Help us remember to reach out to you, even in our great challenges, our great difficulties, even in those moments where we are crying out in our spirit, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Help us remember that your redemption is sure. Your promises always come true. Thank you, Lord. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, whoever you are, whoever you think you are, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, remember you have absolutely nothing to fear because God is with you. Wherever you go, God is already there. So go with God. Amen. Grace and peace to each and every one of you this week. See you next time.